Hi there, I'm Dan Jones. Welcome to the podcast. I'm an oceanographer working at the British Antarctic Survey in Cambridge, UK. And on this podcast, I have long format, casual conversations with folks whose work intersects with climate in some way. I'm reporting to you from my home office in a little village outside of Cambridge. And presumably this is where I'm going to be reporting to you from for the next several weeks, months, the foreseeable future. It's uh, it's obviously a weird time. That's an understatement, but uh, it's a bizarre time. And in fact, when we kind of look back on this, you know, in the coming years, it's it's going to stand out, obviously. It's going to be one of the weirdest times of uh, all of our lives, no doubt. Uh, the whole planet's kind of, you know, conscious of this this virus, this spreading virus, the whole planet kind of uh, trying to react to that, trying to manage that flow, trying to stem that flow, to stem the spread of, of this, this uh, condition, this disease. And it's been really interesting to watch this. I mean, you know, scary, obviously, in some ways, but also really interesting because it's, it's a time when there has been this level of coordinated effort that you just don't see that often. It's not a very common you know, feature uh, of kind of large-scale society to see such a coordinated large-scale effort. I'm not saying that all the efforts have been perfect in you know, all of their different ways. Of course, there's plenty to talk about there, but it's just it's remarkable anyway. I kind of I'm going to ramble on here for a few minutes and then introduce the the guest and tell you about our recording session and things. So, and I I, I won't be long. <laughs> this is I won't I won't go on that long. But I just I did want to share with you that I noticed that uh, I'm not panicking for some reason. I kind of abstractly thought you know when when I imagined a scenario like this unfolding in the past, I kind of imagined I had a sense of kind of dread about it. You know, imagining these kind of possibilities of large scale, a large scale, you know, viral outbreak or a large scale economic issue. I kind of always imagined that I might feel a lot of dread and panic in these situations. And I've just thought it was kind of weird that I haven't, I haven't really been panicking. And I wonder if that's because I don't really know, but I wonder if that's because I see a lot of helpers emerging. I see a lot of people really trying to you know, help out their communities to help out the people who need them and the whole, the very act of like staying home and isolating yourself and washing your hands like crazy, like a surgeon, you know, uh, for you know at least 20 seconds. This is all, uh, this is all coordinated effort to, to help. It's, it's a, uh, it's an effort to protect the most vulnerable among us. And maybe, maybe I'm not panicking because I kind of feel like it's working by and large, that is the the mechanism by which we all care for each other and all look out for each other uh, the, in a large-scale sense. That's kind of kicking in, and it's kind of doing what it needs to do for the most part. You know, again, okay, I know it's not perfect, and I know there's, there's plenty of uh, valid criticisms to be had, but I was just trying to trying to wonder why why I don't feel panicked, why I feel actually kind of strangely uh, obviously, obviously, I'm paying attention to what's happening, and I'm staying uh, abreast of the kind of you know current information about what uh, how we need to respond to the condition to the virus. But that's uh, I think yeah, it seems to be working. That collective kind of effort process seems to be working, which is is really remarkable and interesting. All right, so um, I actually. You know, as you might guess, I'm going to be recording future podcasts remotely over Skype, over Zoom, you know, whatever solution kind of works, over Anchor, you know, whatever tool we need to use, really. Um, and so the future ones, you know, will sound like phone calls. They will sound like Zoom conversations. Uh, but I imagine a lot of you are getting really used to that audio quality at the moment. The, the sound of a Zoom conversation, the sound of a Zoom meeting or a Skype meeting, a video conference. So this is uh, the last live recorded one that I'm going to have for a while, presumably for you know weeks, months, we'll see. But it's a really good one, and I'm really excited to bring this one to you. So I had a conversation with Susan Lozier. And Susan Lozier, she's the dean of the College of Sciences at Georgia Tech. And uh, she just started that role a couple of months ago. We talk about that. We talk about what that role is going to look like for her. 
I was at Georgia Tech for a time, for a couple of years. I followed my advisor there uh, when he moved, and uh, we talk about that a little bit. She's also, she was a professor, and I think she's still uh, an emeritus or honorary professor in some capacity at Duke University, where she was for many years, a professor of oceanography. So uh, we, and also interestingly, so she's the president-elect of the American Geophysical Union, which I imagine, you know, most of my, most of you all will know what that means and what that signifies. But just in case you don't, the American Geophysical Union is this gigantic umbrella organization. It has 60,000 plus members and uh, it includes, it does include oceanography, it includes atmospheric science, it includes solar physics, it includes geophysics, like hard, hard earth, you know, rock geophysics. So it's this huge umbrella, huge geoscience umbrella. And their, their motto or their slogan is that they imagine that they galvanize the geoscience community. And that's, that's their effort. When I say they imagine, I mean, that's what they're, that's what they're aiming for. So Susan, she will be the president of AGU for from 2021 to 2022. And so she, uh, we talk a little bit about some of her ideas about that. We talk a little bit about virtual conferences, actually. And when we had that conversation about virtual conferences, this uh, was obviously before the spread of the, the virus, the spread of the coronavirus uh, started to get uh, more attention and started to get really serious. You know, even though this was only a month ago, we only recorded this at AGU Ocean Sciences, which happened kind of late, you know, mid-late February. So it really wasn't that long ago. But uh, so much has changed in that short, tiny amount of time. Uh, so really, this conversation, uh, I, I listened back to bits of it just to play with the audio quality and try to improve the audio quality. And I noticed there were some bits that uh, that sounded kind of strange <laughs> in the light of our current uh, current. Uh, situation. I think I, I made some comment about how, you know, virtual meetings will, will never take the place of face-to-face meetings. And okay, sure, that's still true. But it's it's interesting viewing that comment through the light of isolation at the moment, you know, viewing that comment through the lens of, uh, oh, this is, that's all we've got. All we have is Zoom meetings, Skype meetings, virtual meetings, Google Hangouts, whatever you're, you're using. So uh, in the light of a uh, Truly, only having that as the option, uh, it feels weird to go back and listen to criticisms along the lines of like, yeah, but it'll never replace face-to-face meetings. Like, okay, all right. Anyway, back to Susan Lozier. Long, long intro today. I'm going long today. Um, so she, Susan Lozier is also the, the PI of the OSNAP project, which is the overturning and the subpolar North Atlantic program, and this is a large international effort that uh, involves both the U.S. and the U.K. to measure and create a long-term record of the fluxes of heat and mass and fresh water in the North Atlantic. There's a couple of different arrays of instruments. There's OSNAP East and OSNAP West, and we, we talk about that a lot. Actually, we talk about the scientific basis for OSNAP and we talk about the the history, a bit of understanding the overturning in the North Atlantic, which has a long and interesting uh, history in oceanography as one of the kind of first problems that people really started to to treat with measurements and concepts and uh, physical treatments, scientific treatments. You can follow OSNAP uh, on Twitter at OSNAP underscore updates. Susan Lozier does have a Twitter account, but uh, there's not a whole lot going on there. <laughs> I don't know if the comms people at Georgia Tech will encourage her to, to use that more, but at the, at the moment, uh, it's not an avenue she's using. So if you want to get in touch with her, you'll have to go by more traditional methods like email and whatnot. We, uh, so Susan and I talked at AGU Ocean Sciences in this nice uh, media room, which overlooked the big poster hall. So we could look out through this this glass and we could see the entire poster hall and we could see all that kind of flurry of activity down there. This was in 2020, obviously. This was last month in San Diego, you know, sunny San Diego. And I want to give a, a big thanks to uh, Lauren LaPuma and Nancy Bumpy. Uh, both of them helped secure this recording space for me, which is uh, very, very appreciated. So thank you to Lauren and Nancy for working on that. 
Uh, Lauren, you can find on Twitter at tenacious underscore she. Really clever, really clever username. Uh, handle, I mean. And uh, both Lauren and Nancy are involved with the AGU's podcast, Third Pod from the Sun, and you can follow that podcast at Third Pod. Uh, that's a very good one. That's a you know really nice podcast that uh, talks about they, they they talk about scientists and the science, the stories behind the science is what they like to say. And it's a, it's also a really nice it's a nice podcast. So Susan only had about an hour, so this ended up being a somewhat shorter episode. And the the room was was good. The room was fine. It was a little bit echoey, so you'll hear that in the audio. I tried to take as much of the audio out as I could, but it ends up being a little bit a little bit echoey. Again, it's fine. Just flagging that up for you. For updates on the podcast, follow at Climate Sci Pod. I'm at Dan Jones Ocean, and now I've given you an entire soup of Twitter handles in this uh, rather long intro. But uh, take care of your, yourselves. I hope you're all doing okay. Hope you're all doing all right. You know, look after your your mental health, and if you can move around, if you can exercise, uh, that's that's good. Obviously, if you can, um, yeah. I hope you're. I hope you can stay in touch and stay in contact with people. This is going to be weird, and I think it's okay to feel whatever way you're feeling about it. And uh, you know, you can give yourself that permission to feel how you're feeling about it. But uh, yeah, look after yourself. Be well. Wash your hands. And uh, let's go ahead and get into this conversation with Susan Lozier. Here we go. Yes. About six years now. Yeah. Colorado State. And. What's um, connection? There, there, there is actually because um, so my advisor was Takahito. Oh yeah, of course. Okay. <laughs> well, because I mentioned to Rick Williams that I was meeting. You know Rick Williams. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Do you well. Yeah. Feel free. Have have a seat. Get comfortable. Um, yeah. So that's that's our connection, I guess. Is okay. Now you've started at Georgia Tech as the as a dean of the yeah. College of Sciences. Yeah. 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 So you've been doing that job for a couple couple months now? Since or? September. Since I thought September. you were going to say a couple years and I was going to just like, like no, no, I'm still new, you know. No, I remember because um, we were emailing a bit and yes. trying to figure out, you know, I, I was trying to figure out which institution you were. <laughs> you know, I have, yeah. the, I'm, I, I'm a professor emeritus at Duke, but anyway, I have, I answer emails from both places, but definitely check things out more yeah. on, the, on, the, on the George Tech side. But today we were primarily going to talk. Well, actually, what are we going to talk about? Well, yeah, I mean, these are very relaxed and conversational. Okay. I have a kind of you know loose set of things that yeah. we could talk about. Right. So I'm going to glance over at this every now and then just to make sure that it hasn't crashed or something. Sure. You know, yeah. It, uh, it doesn't happen often, but every now and then it'll just crash. So and I'll keep an eye on the time too. Okay. So you know, if you're supposed to meet somebody at five, then you know I'll keep that in mind. Um, yeah, so thanks thanks for doing this. Sure. Thanks for taking yeah. some time out yeah. here at Ocean Sciences. How, so how has your day been? Like, what's happened so far? What has happened so far? Well, I just came from a um, meeting with AGU, ASLO, um, and TOS, who are the three conveners right. of Ocean Sciences. So I'm the president-elect of AGU. So that was interesting, sort of. I think a lot of people, some people may not even understand that those three societies are there, but it's interesting Mm -hmm. because we're already talking about um, the meeting in 2026 and, you know, talking about issues about reducing the carbon footprint and that sort of thing. So, Right. So does that include like remote attendance options? That is, in fact, at the AGU March Council meeting next month, we're going to have, that's a big topic of conversation is how we can overall work toward reducing the carbon footprint of the right. meetings so yeah. anywhere from having fewer meetings you know increasing you know virtual presence that sort of thing so yeah and another good thing i'm sure you all talked about this already but another good aspect of having virtual meetings or the option to participate remotely mm-hmm. is that it will lower those participation barriers you know people will still Agreed. you know if they can't travel for whatever reason or they don't have you know funding to come to a meeting and pay for a expensive hotel in a nice right. you know, like in a, in a downtown area like yeah, we are here right then they can still come and they can st- or they can still participate they can still you know be a part of it agreed i guess one of the challenges there though is that 
one of the nice things about being at a meeting is those random encounters exactly. with people. Right. You have those face-to-face conversations, and there's no right. good digital substitute for that. No, not know. yet. And it's actually hard to imagine that it could be It could mm. be the same. So it's a trade-off, mm-hmm. right? And so I think it's hard to imagine we will go completely virtual, but... Having it's, it as an option. It's, it's an option. Yeah. yeah. You know, yeah. it reminds me a little bit of the... Um, the MOOCs, you know, the massive open online courses mm-hmm. that when they were first proposed, maybe now 10 or 15 years ago, I don't know that people really understood that um, they would then uh, really offer something quite significant for mm-hmm. people who uh, couldn't access a traditional, um, you know, campus, people who right. were handicapped. There were a lot of um, uh, soldiers, you know, overseas that were taking advantage of these classes. Mm. So it was actually pretty amazing about think about lowering, you know, barriers. So yeah. and people yeah. in countries where, you know, maybe they don't have a good way to go to a big university, but, right? But as long as they still have an okay internet connection, hopefully they can still they still can still do it. Yeah, but yeah. I yeah. So it's really interesting to think about well, not only publications of the future, which is also a big thing, it's also just the meetings of the future. So. Yeah. Yeah. It's good to hear that that conversation is going on. You know, mm-hmm. I know a lot of us when we were flying over, we we did think about it. We were like, oh, I know. geez, yeah, I know. yeah. Well, even and, somebody suggested uh, Martin Wiesbeck, who's the president of Toss, suggested maybe um, we could have a button on the registration page where you uh, pay to offset your mm-hmm. um, your carbon cost. Right. You know, yeah. so make you feel a little less guilty. How's that? Yeah, as somebody who yeah who travels, but like we said, there's no real substitute for those in-person meetings. But it would be good to have some other options and some Agreed. other things. Yeah. Do we want to talk about OSNAP a little bit? Happy you to know? talk about yeah. OSNAP. That's also I spent my whole day yesterday talking about right. OSNAP. There was a workshop at um, the Scripps campus in La Jolla. But uh, yeah. I'm happy to talk about that. Yeah, up at, up at, so you're the the PI, the international PI for that. Yeah, right. So where where is so OSNAP? Do you mind talking a little bit about maybe you can just say what the big goal is, you know, for people, people listening who might not be familiar with it. Happy to talk about that overall. So I think uh, maybe some people listening may know about the RAPID program, um, and the RAPID program was put in place in 2004. So this really, um, I'm going to say, came out of studies in the late 1990s, if I can go back that far. And so... I would say in the late 1990s, people understood, actually people have understood about the overturning circulation since Count Romver first described it in 1800, which is pretty cool to think about that. Mm -hmm. But people at that time assumed that the overturning circulation was really changing on millennial timescales. And so think about long time, Mm -hmm. yeah, in other words, that it wasn't variable on our modern Mm timescales. And so past, you know, paleoclimate or paleoclimate data was interpreted in the context, you know, of warming, cooling because of the increase or decrease in the overturning circulation or what was called then the global conveyor belt. And so in the 1990s, in the late 1990s, there were studies of um, ice core data and the synchronous records both in uh, Greenland and in Antarctica showed um, global air temperature changes that were on the order of years to decades. Mm. And so this got everybody's attention, and the hypothesis that was put out there at the time was that it was the overturning circulation that was responsible um, for you know, creating global you know, air temperature changes on that timescale. So this was the whole rapid climate change, abrupt climate change. Changes, so they were thinking, oh, there must be changes in the rate of heat transfer, transport from northward. the equator, well, tropics, to, to the, the to the poles. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Do mm-hmm. I can step back a little bit and explain overall with the overturning circulation? I'm, I know you know this, but... Sure. Yeah, no, it's, it's good. We can, we can record it and, you know... And then you can. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Do you know the story about Count Rumford? Well, not, not really. Not beyond what you just mentioned briefly. So, okay. uh, yeah, that... that well, feel free if you'd like to tell okay, the story. I'll, yeah. I'll tell you the story. <laughs> so this story actually goes back to 1751. Yeah. So um, in 1751, um, lots of ships, you know, crossing, you know, the Atlantic um, between the colonies um, and England. And there was a Reverend Stephen Hales back in England who became very interested in ocean temperatures. Um, but at that time, it was not commonplace, but people were mapping... Um, 
the surface temperatures of the of the, of the North Atlantic um, using and getting buckets, semi buckets and and putting buckets thermometers in. Yes, side, yeah. but he was very interested in deep ocean temperatures, hmm. and so he um, asked a, a, a Captain Henry Ellis. Um, and I have no idea how they ever got acquainted, but this was a captain of a British slave trader running between West Africa and the colonies. And so this Captain Ellis agreed that he would stop in the middle of the tropics, or he called it the torrid zone, mm. and he would take measurements of the deep ocean temperature. And so he wrote a long letter back to Reverend Hales describing what they did. And so essentially they took a wooden bucket and they cut the bottom out of the, of the wooden bucket. And then they fitted the top and the bottom with valves. And they were one-way valves. So they had a very, very long rope. Okay. And so when they were on station, um, they would lower the bucket down. First they just lowered it to the surface. And then when they pulled it up, the valves would shut. Right. So okay. they would capture the water. And then he has a part in his letter where he says... We pulled it on deck, and then we put in the bucket um, a thermometer of Mr. Fahrenheit's made by Mr. Bird mm. and measured the temperature. Right. And he writes that the temperature of the surface um, of the ocean matched the temperature of the air at the time, which was 83 degrees Fahrenheit. So that was good. Yeah. And then they would just make successive draws, right? They would just lower the bucket down a little bit, a yeah. little further, capture the water, bring it up, measure the temperature. So in this letter, he says that the cold decreased proportional to depth. So the further they put it down, mm. the water got colder. Mm -hmm. And then he says, until we lowered the bucket. Now, they did this in fathoms. I'm not going to remember now how many fathoms, yeah. but it's That's about eight or 900 meters. And he says, and no matter how much further we lowered the bucket, the water temperature came up the same, mm. uh, which at that time he recorded to be 53 degrees, 53 degrees Fahrenheit. What I really like about this letter, though, was that he says, now, we, we, we imagine, though, we know that that bucket isn't leak-proof. And we know also that when it's coming up, it's encountering warmer waters. Yes, yeah, so we're, su we're, we're sure that these, this 53 degrees is, is too warm, you know. Right. So I thought that right. was pretty interesting. It's that they, modified as it comes Yes, as it exactly, yeah. yes. Um, so essentially they measured the, it was the first measurement that we know of the thermocline, mm. where the waters are warmer at the surface, they decrease, and then they just keep going down. Yeah. But then the, my very, very favorite part of the letter is at the end, he says to Reverend Hales, he says, well, we hope this letter, or we hope this data is of some use to you scientifically. Mm. We don't... Um, we don't know what to make of it, he said, but we're very pleased to have found a source of cool water to cool our baths and our wines All in this right. vastly disagreeable weather. Isn't that <laughs> right, awesome? Okay. Yeah. So they were using it to, to stay cool and keep things <laughs> Apparently, cool. they oh. found cold water in that vastly disagreeable climate. <laughs> yeah. So that letter went back to the Royal Society of London. Um, Reverend Hales passed it there, and it sat there for... 49 years until Count Rumford. I don't know. Count Rumford mm. is the one who really would, people talk about being the father of heat convection. Mm. And so he read that letter and could not figure out how the deep waters, well, basically why it had that profile, but why those waters were so uniformly cold mm. and why they were so much colder than he thought they ever should be because they're in the equatorial region. So mm. at that point, the waters were considered dark, void of life and still right yeah so and so you if it's just sitting there then you might think oh well it'll just diffuse down exactly. eventually the heat will just diffuse right. down and make everything more or less uniform yes that's yeah, the idea yeah. see you're just mm. like count rumbert in 1800 <laughs> and you would have known that <laughs> and so um thought about it and then he wrote these two sentences and he said it seemed I'm not no I'm not going to get this completely right, but he says I can something like I can think of no other possibility for the source of those cold waters at depth in the torrid zone than they at one time had to have been at the surface mm. in the polar latitudes. Ah, and nice. then he says, nice. if that's the case, <laughs> then those warm surface waters in the torrid zone must find their way poleward mm. to replenish the waters. Oh, yeah. That are yeah because the so, cold water would have sunk down yes so, he's, so there's so a there hole must be there's a mass hole. conservation mass con he didn't use the words so mass that, conservation yeah. but he's saying like replenishing yeah. so in 1800 
Hmm. He wrote that about the order. Isn't that cool? It is cool. Yeah. I have going loved on, that story. Going on nothing but the, oh, it's warm up top and colder below. Very cold, right? And the air temperature, <laughs> I can't imagine the air temperature was huh. ever, yeah. Isn't that cool? It is cool. Yeah. Basically, he said, well, I've, I've falsified the just diffusion, diffusive slab model. Right. So now yeah. I, I need an alternative I need an alternative and let's bring yeah. in infection. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> That's really cool. So that was Count Rumford in 1800. So mm-hmm. getting back to my story. Mm-hmm. So then that idea then was, on very long time scales. Um, be, oh, because then that controlled the Northward heat transport, right? Because those mm-hmm. equatorial waters, um, you know, need to move, you know, northward. Now we know it's not symmetric about the equator because of the, you know, distribution and how our land masses and oceans, mm-hmm. you know, are distributed. Um, but in the late 1900s, uh, so physical oceanographers really didn't pay much attention to the overturning circulation because yes. we were more interested in things that are happening on modern timescales, like El Nino, North Atlantic Oscillation, mm. things like that. But in 1900, there was the big buzzwords in the climate science community were abrupt climate change. And there was a um, National Research Council report in 2002 titled Abrupt Climate Change. And that was the impetus for putting in the rapid um, array that is led by the UK and the US partners with the rapid, right. So that was that was put in in two thousand and four because they had the idea that well, what if what if this overturning circulation shuts off right. rapidly? We need to monitor will, it. We yes. need to understand. And because prior to that, no, there were ha- were no direct measurements of the overturning circulation. Hmm. So people were using um, hydrographic measurements. Uh, to try to infer, you know, the the velocity, but the hydrographic measurements weren't. They were taken from one-time ship surveys, comparing in one decade to another decade. Yes. So rapid was put was put together there yeah. for that purpose. Yeah, with that, all you could do is estimate the kind of you know, so-called geostrophic kind of transport because it's based that's on the right. tilt of the density surfaces, but that doesn't tell you the kind of you know moment to moment variation and the and then that northward heat transport so you need to monitor it you need to monitor it, it. it matters for for climate and it matters for regional climate and global climate yes yeah and the other thing is and this is really what motivated the OSNAP program as well is that um, wait I'm gonna say one more thing about rapid then I'll get then Please, I'll go back yes. to get back to OSNAP is that Prior to the rapid array putting in, there was a study where they took a hydrographic section to create those geostrophic flows in the 50s, one from the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. They had five decades, Mm. but they were just one slice, you know, a six-week slice, you know, during the summer, Mm. during those years. And they had predicted based on that that there had been a slowdown of 30% from the 50s, right? Mm. So rapid goes in. And is continuously measuring, and in their first year, they found a seven-fold change in the magnitude of the overturning circulation. Mm. So people had no idea that it could change on those time scales. Mm. And you, we also realized that we couldn't rely on snapshots of the um, overturning right. because it just right. was so variable. Okay, getting back to OSNAP. So. The idea has been that ever since Rumford, that changes of the high latitudes, you know, in the polar mm-hmm. latitudes, um, are really um, determining the strength of the transport of the waters from the high latitudes, you know, and then from the, low, from the surface waters going back. But we've had no observational basis for really to understand that linkage, right? So we know the overturning is there, but we're trying to figure out how sensitive is it to water mass formation at high latitudes. Mm. And when you would look at the climate models, um, they show the overturning circulation, but very different sensitivities. And the other thing I wanna mention is, as a, um, a motivation for OSNAP is that people have understood since Rumford's time and certainly in the, in the paleo world, that if you slow uh, the overturning circulation or increase it, then you're changing how much, they're basically changing the redistribution of heat. So mm-hmm. it's an impact climate, you know, global climate and also regional climate. But since the Industrial Revolution, uh, we now know that about 25 to 30% of the anthropogenic CO2 that's been released in the atmosphere is in is in the deep ocean. And, um, ha- or sorry, has been taken up by the ocean, and half of that is in the deep ocean. Yes. And the right. North Atlantic's okay. a hot spot. It is, yes. It's yeah. got intense convection, and it's yes. also 
you know, part of that over an important part of the sinking, yes. the sinking limb of the overturning circulation. Right. So it's a heat sink and a carbon and sink. And a carbon yes. sink. Yes. So we want to know well, why, what is the sensitivity? Because then mm. if it slows, it's taking up less anthropogenic CO2, which has huge impacts on, on the climate. So mm. RAPID was really, was put in at 26 North in the North Atlantic, um, to measure the overturning circulation. At that time, people thought it was measuring the overturning circulation. Mm -hmm. But as we've gone on, we've realized that mm -hmm. there's variability, you know, mm -hmm. between the subpolar and subtropical. So the idea was to say, we need to go up where the deep water masses are being formed and measure the deep water masses being formed and uh, look at the impact of the overturning. Right. So it was really, and I should say is, focused on trying to understand that connection and look at the sensitivity of the overturning circulation to the formation of these water masses at high latitudes. You measure at 26 north with rapid as a good baseline for that northward transport, and then you measure much further northward right. to try to get at the sinking, that upper limb. That right. Limb. Yeah, right. 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 So, right. You, so you can measure it in both of those locations. Right, yeah, yeah. So that, exactly. So that array is... In place, has been in, in place. It went in, in 2014. Mm -hmm. So we um, have finished this summer will be six years of data, <laughs> which seems amazing. Yeah. It started, I think, I was at a workshop at Woods Hole in 2007 or eight. That's how long um, when the idea came the up. Yeah. yeah, the planning. Yes. And I held the first workshop in 2010, the spring of 2010. Um, yeah, so it's great. Yeah, so we have getting getting the data out, and that's why on Sunday I was in La Jolla for another OSNAP uh, PI meeting. Right. What's uh, what kind of challenges have you run into that maybe weren't super obvious when you were in that planning phase and in the beginning of the OSNAP project? I imagine some challenges have come up since then. There since have been of, some know. challenges. <laughs> Actually, the first challenge, which was really well, I'll talk about the funding in a little bit. Mm. But the first challenge was just to think about how we wanted um, to measure, where we wanted to measure, and then I'll also say how. Um, so we had first thought, or we thought, well, we could just go straight, pick a latitude line like Rapid did, and go straight across. Mm. Um, but we ended up deciding to sort of um, go from Labrador to Greenland, sort of have two sections, and then from Greenland over, just because we could an answer more scientific questions. So that wasn't really... A challenge. It was something to work through. But what was really, in some ways, more interesting was um, this was the time when more and more gliders were coming, um, you know, in, into use. And so there were some um, people of the planning committee that thought we shouldn't really go with the conventional means of measuring transports, which is putting in, you know, the current meters. We should, with a new observing array, perhaps try to do this with gliders. Hmm. Um, so there were lots of interesting, you know, conversations. And in the end, we decided to go with the traditional current meter system mm -hmm. and experiment with the use of gliders. Um, and the gliders have been very challenging. Is that, um, I mean, the gliders, you have to deploy them at a specific time. You do. That's some, some, and you, ha you have to pilot them around a little bit. You and do. You have to get them back out of the ocean. Yes, so, you do. All of that. And that sounds pretty different from, you know, putting a current meter yes. in the ocean and then coming back every now and then and getting the data off yes. of it. Yes. Yes. So yes. one's more of a continuous deployment and the other is more... Oh, well, the idea, maybe, sorry, the gliders were that, you know, you would have a glider's doing continuous monitoring and oh, then really? another glider comes out and takes oh, its place. So I it's see. like, okay. you know... Continuously running glider measurements yes. in that area. Okay. In that yeah, area. That does sound ambitious. <laughs> yes, yeah. yes. And so, but that, that was done um, out of uh, SAMS, you know, the Scottish mm -hmm. Association for Marine Sciences yeah. out of Oban, or Oban, Oban. Oban is what I, I got it, the third choice. Say. Third yeah. choice. Um, but it's been challenging. Very, um, you know, strong current. But we're learning a lot. So, anyway, that was all um, working that out. But I'm, I think everybody's glad that we ended up the, the backbone of the array are traditional, you know, current meter um, arrays. But it's been a challenge. You know, there's um, five different countries that have provided the funding, and then there's two other countries that have, you know, have, have come in later and contributed. 
but just making sure that we've been able to be continuously in the mm-hmm. water um, has been a challenge. But not, you know, it's really been a very collaborative effort, and not so much just because it's uh, resource intensive, but it also there have been a lot of a lot of countries have um, expertise in that. Yeah. In those waters, so it's the Canadians, it's the Americans, it's the, you know, the British, the Germans, the the Dutch. I hope I'm not forgetting anybody. The French. And it's a common, it's a big, interesting scientific problem. Right. It's people sounds like have been very willing to get on board with it and to yeah. you know, help out and find funding for it. And right. So so you found this kind of critical scientific problem and were able to. You know, draw from this big network of collaborators and get, get yeah. everyone involved. And that actually is something I really am excited to talk to you about is um, this over, the overall idea of like leadership, of, of mm-hmm. being somebody who, um, ha, ha, who takes responsibility mm-hmm. for finding potential in something, for finding potential in people and finding mm-hmm. potential in systems and then having the kind of courage to, to develop that potential. Mm-hmm. Um, it'd be really great to hear your, your thoughts on that. I, re, I know that's not you know, necessarily a scientific question, but it's something that you know, you're, you know, I think you, it, you've been a leader in several different capacities and, uh, over the years and are now taking on new, new leadership roles. Oh. So I'm sure it's something you've, you've, you've obviously got a ton of experience with it and have to have thought about it. And, yeah. yeah. Well, you're kind to say courage. I've never really thought of myself as, as, as courageous. You don't think so? <laughs> no, that's kind of you to say. Um, I think I've just been driven by issues and sort of a passion for, for doing something. But I do. it does take, I always say, a champion, hmm. you know. And so um, for me, whether it's designing, you know, a mentoring program or picking up on OSNAP, I have, um, yeah, I think I've just really been driven by interest in wanting to see things done and you know you can't it's one of those things that sounds so trite but you can't wait for somebody else to you know to do things but I do also have never done these things alone Mm. you know and so I do really like um engaging people or maybe it's because I was the fourth of six children or something I I shared a bedroom with five girls you know (laughs) there were five uh, girls in my family but I've um I've liked that I've liked building things you know and in training people and you know gathering people i i would say for me i don't um i if i had to say that i had a strength i like um creating a common vision so i like mm-hmm. sort of listening to people's ideas and sort of sort of coalescing and sort of figuring out what yeah what we can do collectively i like that a lot that's exciting so, when you can do that isn't it like, it is like i've i've been fortunate enough to do that on small scales you know with small yeah. projects yeah and it's this it feels great when you when you feel like you have listened enough and have integrated enough yes. to say okay here's this community right that i feel like i'm a part of and that right. i would like to contribute to right. and you start to get a sense of the problems that are out there yes and then you go looking for okay, well, let's put together a cohort, right? Let's put together a set of yeah. people and then right. let's all write a small grant proposal together and then try to get that, that thing yeah. done. And if you can find the, the people, if you can find that network and if you can find that's, that's the, the, trick. the problem, then right. you usually can get people on board. And mm-hmm. I, I think um, I've only ever really worked with scientists in that capacity, but I think I'm guessing that's one of the one of the advantages to being a leader in the scientific field is that if you can find a cool problem, you're probably going to be able to get people I agree. involved. I agree, yes. and you can articulate it. But it really yes. is about the idea, about mm-hmm. what you want to do. So people, it wasn't like I was asking them to join this or whatever because I was interested in it. It's really about saying, this is the idea, this is what I want to, you know, when I want to move forward and yeah. stuff. So It's very different than saying, let's have an internet startup and let's, you know, let's start a company. <laughs> Uh, that's because I guess if you're starting a company, you know, you, you need an argument for, okay, here's, here's what we're going to offer and here's what the revenue is going to be. And here's how we're going to be able to stay in business. And I mean, you know, you have to think about funding flows in our field, obviously as well, but it's, it's not the same as asking kind of customers to buy a thing or finding customers to buy, buy a product. Do you, do you mind if I ask, I mean, one of the things that a a leader kind of, you know, runs into is confronting that feeling 
So it's the feeling when you're uncertain, when you're not really sure about how something's going to pan out. Right. When you're feeling maybe a little kind of exposed, and you're feeling like, okay, I've got to, I've got to put myself out there, and I've right. got to put this idea out there, right. even though I don't know if it's, if it's going to work or not. Right. Or I don't right. know. This, this could all just kind of fall apart, and then we all, you know, luckily it didn't go this way. But we could have, we could have instead been talking about like, well, you remember that O snap thing was a good idea. <laughs> too bad that never. It's a dud. <laughs> too bad right. that never Bust. got off, off the yeah. ground. Right. And you know, at the time in that meeting in 2007, you know, no, nobody, nobody knew like if that was going to be a possibility or not. That is true. And I, I, I was in, the, I was fortunate enough to be in the room with some of the folks who came up with, with SOCOM, you know, that SOCOM yes, idea. Yes, right. And yeah. I've, I've mentioned it on the podcast before, but, like, that whole room was full of people going, like, well, this this won't work. I mean, we'll never get the funding for this, but let's just, if we could, if we did, right. what should yeah. we do? So it would be great to hear your thoughts on how how you confront that feeling or push through that feeling. or how. You know, if, I always thought it would be funded. <laughs> to, to do it? You just <laughs> did I have doubts? Um <laughs> I, well, I'm joking a little bit. Um, I think if you're pushing through something like that, you have to be a true believer. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, you do. But yes, there were things. I didn't think it would ever fizzle because there wasn't, um, the idea wasn't strong mm. or, I, you know, there's just funding realities and, and that sort of thing. Yes. But I guess... Um, you can't, you know, those doubts, you can't, yeah, yeah, you, yeah that you can't let that add, add too much uh, friction. Because a lot of it's out of your control. You know, it you, is, You, you can't right. do anything about the larger funding landscape. Right. You can try to get a sense of what is it that funders want to buy into and how can I frame this as something that they will want to, to buy into. Right. Which has been something I've been learning more about as I've been writing, you know, funding requests right. and things. Yes. Well, I, uh, I mean, I will say though that initially, so back in two thousand and seven, initially it was an NSF-funded workshop that was looking at um, the overturning circulation and what what the next steps were mm. was needed. And I will say, early on, I realized this project was going to be way too big to ask NSF to fund it. Mm. You okay. know, so yeah. it was something where. As I was going along, and then I, you know, was gathering people, and understood this was going to have to be um, collaborative for the resources mm. that were needed, and also just you know because because of the scope of it. So as part of it was also dealing with that reality, you know, um, early on. Mm. So, so it sounds like there was was an idea like it was clearly relevant and clearly important, mm. and it's. Hard to argue against that, right? It was kind of an iron. iron well, you know, you're like, talking you know, to me, so, so that's it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Somebody yeah. else may say, "Are you kidding? <laughs> We've um, wasted so much money." <laughs> but still, it was something that, like you said, not not doing it alone. You know, you were in the community and part of the community, oh, and yes. you know, yeah. But still, you were willing to be like one of the focal points to say, "Yeah, I'll, I'll take that on. I'll I'll send the emails and I'll fill out the forms and I'll you know, I try to be the right, conduit right through the, which this yeah. this occurs." Yeah. Uh, and so that that takes a level of willingness to say. Um, yeah, okay, I, I believe in myself and I'm confident enough in myself to say that I, I can do that and I can manage that process. I've and never thought about it that way, but <laughs> I suppose that's... Um, yeah, but I guess I was doing what I like doing. Yes. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And so that's where I don't want to pretend to be to, you know... But I would say I was championing it because I liked that role. How's that? Hmm. You liked so, the role of being being the you were comfortable in that that role, yeah, and, and being a champion yeah, for an idea you liked. Yeah, is yeah. Cha- champion's a good word? I yeah, think it is, yeah, promoter it is. sounds a little too. Yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, no, champion's okay. good. <laughs> Did you? Can you point to anything with where there like earlier experiences with with being a you know a champion of an idea that you can identify saying like you know earlier mm-hmm. times in your life? How did you kind of step up to you know getting from uh, you know. Well, the Empower program, I don't know if you know about the Empower program. So Uh, the Empower program is a mentoring program. Actually, I was just at the Empower Town Hall. Yes, I have heard about this, yes. Yeah, and that was something. So Empower stands for Mentoring Physical Oceanography Women to Increase Retention. And so 20 years ago, I was at an NSF panel um, and just sort of noticed that the proposals that were coming in from junior women were not faring well. Hmm. Um, And my own experience had been... Um, that I, 
you know, went to graduate school with a number of other women and they weren't necessarily, you know, staying in the field. Hmm. And so I just became very interested in why that was the case um, and became very interested in thinking, oh, I know, sorry, let me get back to the, to the panel. Because the proposals that were coming in from early career uh, male scientists were doing better, but the thing I noticed was that they were coming in as part of collaborative projects. Mm. They had somebody uh, more senior on their project, oh etc. Right, and so it just sort of combined with my own experiences. Um, I realized that women didn't have the same mentoring network wow. that that the early career you know men did, and just for all sorts of reasons that we're all all familiar with. Nothing, mm-hmm. you know. Um, nothing really intentional, but just the way that people seek out, you know, collaborators. And so I was very interested in uh, whether we could create those mentoring groups, Hmm. you know, for women. And so I um, asked, started first with a conversation with my NSF program manager, an O&R program manager, and then got a group together to go to D.C. to meet with NSF uh, and O&R, this now would have been 2002, 2003, and was encouraged to put together a proposal for a workshop. Um, anyway, all that mm. yeah, came together and Empower uh, was put into place in 2007. And then I handed off the leadership of that about five or six years ago. Um, just very proud of that. Who's doing um, it now? So Sonia Lake, Sonia, yep. yeah, <laughs> and then Colleen Mao mm. from the University of Rhode Island, and Sonia is at um, GFDL slash Princeton. Right. So you noticed there was a, a networking problem of some sort, a structural yes. structural network yes. problem, and you right. said, okay, well, the way to, to solve this is to proactively let's let's make a network with an explicit yes. goal, an explicit and that objective. was the goal. Yeah. Yes. So the goal was to use this mentoring network to increase the retention, you know, of women. And the network, though, that was created was both men and women. Right. It was for right. junior right. women, but the network, so the, uh, we invited, you know, men and women to these, to these conferences. So, but that was before OSNAP, but sort of, yeah, just that, I would say, outside of my university. You know, I've had a number of things in the university, but mm-hmm. that was... Um, one of the first things in my in my discipline, um, where I stepped in and did that, and but I never I, it was always to me that I was just really interested in solving that hmm. problem. <laughs> yeah, so that's it's just part of uh, like you said, you work on things that you're interested in. Right. So it's just part of your makeup. You identify a problem. You know, it's so- something about the way your brain and emotional system works. You you see a problem and you're like. Let's, yeah, okay, this, we, we this, can do something. Yeah, about this, this 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 needs to be done. But I, I also say I've always been. I remember when I was started um, as an assistant professor, the chair of the department told me that the best thing I could do was to stay in my office and write papers. Mm. You know, and I was writing papers, but I was like, I would just not want this job if you know if that was <laughs> what I was doing. It mm. was just way. I've just liked the. I've liked the social aspects in terms of collaborating scientifically, but just also the aspects of forming that community. Who's in that community has been important to me as well. Yeah, that's right. Mm -hmm. um, And that's something that I talked to Lynn Talley a while Mm -hmm. ago for one of the early episodes of this podcast. And that's, that's another, you know, she's also a champion of community building and of identifying these big problems um, you know, Joellen Russell is another yes. person. There's right. there's lots of you know these these individuals who are, mm-hmm. are doing this work who are drawing drawing people into the community, and and all you know doing it because there's an important problem they want to work on. There's an important right. problem they want to solve. I mean, there so, are plenty of people who are working on very important problems. Um, you know, within their lab group in a university or research institution. And it's just, you know, it's just people have different skill sets. And I've enjoyed that, hmm. yeah, pulling people together around 
would you say would you say that's something you've you had to grow into over time or do you feel like you know oh is it is it embarrassing (laughs) to admit that i was like the president of my high school and and yeah i'm yeah yeah, it's just you know president (laughs) of the student council when i was in eighth grade it's probably just yeah i won't i won't some things are some things are uh kind kind of hardwired to an extent uh and i mean i'm I'm kind of speaking for myself like okay yeah uh, i guess like I'm thinking about watching my son grow up. You know, he's mm-hmm. about eight, and it's been really interesting to see some of his behaviors emerge. Right. And some of them, you know, they, they started so early that I'm like, that wasn't taught. Nobody taught him that. Like nobody taught. This is this has been like one of the great things about parenting for me is recognizing, like, okay, parenting actually a lot of it is about just learning who your kid is. Right. You, you probably don't have as much of an influence over shaping them as you you might naively think. You, uh, you know that it, a lot of it is just, oh, who are you? Hello, welcome. <laughs> nice <laughs> to me, meet you. Let me get to know you. Uh, let me know if I can help. <laughs> right. so, exactly. Sometimes I've described it as like, um, as a parent, when I talked to my husband, we felt as though we were providing. You know, when you go bowling, you know they they put up what are those called on the guardrails? Yeah, yeah, the guardrails, yeah. mm-hmm. right? And so mm-hmm. you sort of want to make sure that they're not getting too far off. You know, like mm. they have their own path of that ball rolling down that alley. Yeah. You just want to make sure they don't stray too far. So we felt yeah. like we were there. Were they called bumper something or other? Oh, Maybe uh, guardrails. Yeah, bump- bumpers, right? I've been calling them guardrails, but... but these are the things they inflate yeah. and put down the... In the UK, they just uh, pop out of the... They're like mechanical, and you press a button, and they pop out of both sides. Okay. Uh, so they, they, then they prevent the ball from going in the gutter. You okay. Know, oh, like, prevent the ball from going in the gutter. Yeah, okay. Yeah. This would be akin to not letting a child fail. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and not ending up in the literal gutter, actually. Right. It's like, right. <laughs> don't end up in the metaphorical or literal or literal right. gutter. Right. Um, yeah. So I want to get you downstairs before five. Okay. There oh, this is, went quickly, Dan. Yeah, it did, didn't mm-hmm. it? Yeah, it did. It did. It's, it's been really good. Um, so we talked about your your. We, we didn't have a ton of time to talk about your pathway and stuff. You know, often we kind of talk about people's... But mm-hmm. we, did, we did a little bit. We did like an abbreviated version, so okay. that's fine. Can we end with this um, relatively quick round? I ask you a few questions about what you've learned about different things. And, and right. you can, you know, whatever comes to mind, you know, the, uh, and you can just kind of... Um, you don't have to spend a ton of time on them, you know, if you don't want to. But um, so I like, feel like this is like a quiz show all of a sudden. Like, is uh, this like I have ten seconds to answer? No. Fine. Okay, it's all right. It's, they're, <laughs> they're not like hard. I don't, I, don't, I don't think they're hard questions. Okay. So, what's something that you've learned about science that you kind of maybe didn't know beforehand? You know, if, if you had something that was surprising, that, that I would say for me, I guess I have been out thirty-one years now. I got my degree in PhD in eighty-nine. I would think what has surprised me is how quickly people adopt, or I should say, how hard it is for paradigms to fall. Mm. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think that's been very interesting to me, that it takes um, takes a while for those, I'm going to say, dominant paradigms. Mm. Sounds like I'm like, this is like down with the administration or something. But there are <laughs> certain paradigms that get really set. Yes. And, um, but I think... It takes persistence to um, hmm. chip away at those. Is there a, a, an example of that? Is, is there? Um, I mean, one that came to my mind was you know, machine learning. Now is kind of emerging as a this other toolkit, but I right. feel like there is sort of a paradigm of folks who are maybe kind of skeptical of that, and who are like, "Yeah, but this isn't physics. You can't right. really do they do that." Right. And um, so I, it, it's. That's going to take time. It's going to take time for us to figure out what to do with this toolkit and how to ingest those and how to, you know. But it, I mean, it's coming. People are using it and they're going to keep using it. And, right. Yeah. But in some ways, it's like I think their patterns will emerge from that. Hmm. That people will then uh, think about the physics or the mechanisms yes. that can explain it. It's the same yes. way with observations. Yes. You know that things emerge and then we need. You know, new theories and, and new ideas. That's the idea. So I, I do adjoint modeling. So that's that's often the idea is you get these patterns that come out and then you say, huh, what's that? How could this be? <laughs> how could this, yeah, yeah, how could yeah. that be? What's something you've learned about academia, you know, just kind of operating in the academic you know, world uh, that... That could be different from science, right? That could be oh, different you know, from science. Yeah, that could just be. Um, I mean, because you're now taking on this position as, as the dean uh, right. of the College of Sciences at Georgia right. Tech, and right. so um, 
that you, you uh, must have you impressed them with your interview and had good answers for <laughs> I imagine these diff some difficult administrative type questions and how to operate you know an institute like Georgia well, Tech. Well, here's what I would say. I think um, for me, um, I think in general universities tend to be very hierarchical. People always sort of try think the universities are filled with these smart people, and they are, and people are always trying to identify the smartest person. I would say for me, I try to identify the smartest ideas. Mm. And that I think being open to good ideas coming from a variety of people is really important. So I would say I'm fighting against that because I think mm -hmm. at universities, people sort of get pegged as being somebody who has the good ideas or is really, you know, um, somebody that should be favored as a faculty member or whatever. But I think the better thing is to just be open to good ideas can come from... Stay open. Yeah, stay open. Stay open. Keep, keep your ears open. Try to ingest, you know, as many different yeah. perspectives as, as you can. Yeah. yeah. No, that's, that sounds good. Um, how about writing? What's something you learned about writing? Do you, do you enjoy writing? Is it, is it a related question to that? You know, actually, know? It's a, it relates to what we were talking about earlier uh, when we were saying, like, uh, waiting for things to coalesce, like you gather all this information. And so writing, for me, um, is something where it's very haphazard in the beginning, and then all of a sudden things will coalesce, and I have mm. a storyline. So I always think about it as the narrative. I'm always saying to my students, what's the story? You know, what's your storyline? Um, so I do like it. I like it a lot. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So it's, once you get um, past that initial, like yes, it's really hard initially. Mm. And so what I always say is that to people is just just to start writing down anything you know is mm. is important, mm. and then things you know. So wait, for things your writing has an activation function. You know, it tips. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Oh, there it is. Right. Yes. <laughs> is. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> How about uh, with something you've learned about? leading and mentoring and um, creating networks and I would say I have been even um, I've been surprised at how well and how, how important the mentoring has been and the networks have been I hmm. did not um, guess that they they would be that powerful but I think it's just the main thing Every, most everybody going through graduate school in the early part of a career in research whether in academia or not yeah, it's just um, lots of issues come up, personally and professional, you know. And I think the what mentoring does is that you understand that other people share these same um, struggles and triumphs. Mm -hmm. And that sharing, I think, has just been, uh, mm -hmm. has meant a lot to people. Uh, cool. Mm -hmm. Well, I want to get you out of here. So, last one. Uh, what's something you learned about the ocean? Who studies the ocean? Well, the ocean. Yeah, I mean, I guess for me, I'm just really interested in that. Um, I well, how much time do we have, Dan, about the ocean? Uh, it's fifty-six, so not long. Not I would long. say the ocean is much more complicated than I thought thirty-one years ago. Mm. That's pretty lame yeah. answer, but yeah. <laughs> I hate to leave with something lame like that, yeah. but. Uh, it's more complicated in that there's lots more variability and the, more the, the coupling between the atmosphere and the ocean is maybe more nuanced than, than we thought. Um, and I know what you mean that, but that often is the result of all of our studies, isn't it? It's like, oh, gee, okay, our old simple picture isn't working anymore. Our old simple picture can't explain. Right, but then people want a new like, you know, simple picture. Yeah. Right? That's the trick. Yeah. Right? It's not, I can, I can explain uh, all sorts of why that old simple picture isn't right and how the new picture is much more complicated. But the new simple picture, I'd say that's my challenge right now. This is model building. Yeah. This is conceptual mm -hmm. model building. And, yeah. you know, we like to have something with just a few knobs on it that we can turn and wrap our brains around. Right. Because, um, that's how, you know, you can actually construct understanding. It was something that you can, it's a few concepts and you can play right. with it in your mind. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas the other end of the spectrum is you just fit a giant machine learning model. Yeah, we don't to, want to do that. You know, well, or then, <laughs> well you, you like fit it to something and you don't really understand what's, what's happening. That's the, that's the, um, it's not really exactly a joke and I can't remember who said it, but something about like, well, let's say you build a really sophisticated, super complex numerical model with all the processes in it and everything that you know, perfectly replicates the behavior of, of the, of the climate and say, like, well, great. Now you have two things you don't understand. 
<laughs> Doubled your problem. Yeah, yeah. I may have said that on here before, so sorry to <laughs> listeners if, if they're like, oh, God, not again. Um, but I better get you out of here. But uh, right. Susan, thanks very much. Well, thank you. That Enjoyed it. Oh, Enjoyed glad. it. Thanks. Glad you did. Thank you. Yay. Okay. There you have it. My conversation with Professor Susan Lozier, Dean of the College of Sciences at Georgia Tech. Thanks to Susan. Thank you very much for taking out uh, taking some time out of your uh, super busy AGU week in San Diego to come and have this chat with me. I really appreciated it. I'm sure that you all uh, enjoyed it as well, the listeners. Well, I hope you did anyway. Uh, thanks to Lauren LaPuma and Nancy Bumpy for helping me secure that recording space in the big San Diego Convention Center overlooking the poster hall. Much appreciated. And uh, as I mentioned in the intro, I'm moving to all online, all remote recordings, starting with the next episode. And I actually, I have a few of those lined up in the coming weeks. So if I uh, manage to get enough of these episodes recorded, I'll try to put these out a little more frequently during this bizarre bizarre period. Um, I can't promise anything just yet, but things are looking okay in terms of, you know, I might be able to release them more frequently than, than once a month. Um, especially if they can all be done remotely. Okay, yeah, so take care of yourself, take care of your loved ones, the people in your life, uh, whether you can take care of them locally or remotely. And uh, yeah, stay well, wash your hands. Bye-bye.